We've turned the page, uh, literally and figuratively, to the sixth chapter of Ecclesiastes, where we'll pick up at verse 10. This is at page 556 in your pew Bible, if that's helpful for you. Oftentimes in wisdom literature, as we were reminded in our recent evening series through the book of James, the subject matter seems a bit random and haphazard even. The author jumps from one topic to another to another without any apparent connection to what's come before or segue into what's coming after. At first blush, that is the impression we get from these verses, these set of Proverbs we'll be reading this morning. And it's true that we do have something of a hodgepodge here, except there is one organic connection. There's a thread that runs through this entire section of Ecclesiastes, tying it together, even if very loosely, and it is the repetition of the single Hebrew word tov, which we translate not only as good, but as better, even as prosperity or joyful. It starts with the question in verse 12 of chapter 6, from which I've drawn the title of today's sermon, Who Knows What is Good for a Man? But tov, good, the Hebrew word that is, continues to pop up in verse 1, and verse 2, and verse 3, and verse 5, and verse 8, and verse 11, and verse 14. The question then, what is good, in verse 12, is the hook on which the collection of Proverbs that follows really hangs. And for that reason, I'm going to read the entire section marked by this unity, 6 verse 10 through 7 verse 14 today, even though for today we're just going to focus on the first four or five verses of chapter 7. May we pray. Father, we need wisdom, and you have promised to supply it when we think, when we pray for it without a double mind. We are set on you getting glory for yourself in us. That is our chief end. That's our greatest joy and desire. In the fulfillment of that, we pray that you will supply what we humbly ask. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, beginning in verse 10 of chapter 6. Whatever has come to be already has already been named. And it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. 
heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of the one who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. So the question is, what good, what is good for a man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? And these verses are the answer to that question, and the very form of the question actually itself raises the first main subject of his answer, which is human mortality. Human mortality. What is good for us? Well, it is good for us to reckon squarely and often with our mortality. In those first four verses of chapter 7 that we consider closely this morning, Kohelet speaks of the day of death, of the house of mourning, and so on. It, it almost seems, doesn't it, like the preacher has some kind of morbid obsession with death and with sadness. But what he's really trying to do here, what he's trying to accomplish is the same thing as Moses in Psalm 90, which is to teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. The very failure, by the way, that we just confessed together as sin a few minutes ago. There are two main points for us this morning, and they are these, dear flock. If you would be wise, what is good for you and for me is one, to reckon with death. And two, to embrace sorrow. Reckon with death and embrace sorrow. First, you must reckon with death. Verse 1, the day of death is better than the day of birth. Funerals are better than birthday parties or frat parties, or New Year's bashes, or whatever. One good funeral, we might say, is better than a whole year of birthday parties. Now, that's not to disparage birthday parties, okay? 
I love a good birthday party. What a wonderful time at the hospital yesterday I had representing both the Lord and you congregation at the hospital in my visitation with and prayer over a brand new baby, Amos. Praise be to God for the day of birth. It's a day to be celebrated as the Bible itself does. And yet, yet the day of death is better than the day of birth. Wow, I mean, that, that's, that's quite a body blow, isn't it? It's not what you expect to read. But if that's the case, and it most certainly is, that it is good for us to spend time face-to-face with death, well, we're not currently in a very good position, are we, to benefit from this better-than situation. What we do as a culture, and when it comes to reckoning with mortality, to facing death, and learning, therefore, to number our days, is is we don't. (laughs) We just don't. In fact, for a society as obscenely obsessed with death as we are, I mean, I witness several graphic murders on the screens each and every time I go to work out at the gym. Several murders in the time I'm on that machine. Death in our movies Death in our video games, to say nothing of death in the newscast, death in the streets, and death by the thousands every single day by abortion. I say obsessed as we are with death and as lethal as we are to ourselves and especially to our own, our own most vulnerable, the pre-born. For all of that, we are very adept at Denying death and and covering it over and hiding it and avoiding it. The headline in the newspaper just yesterday reported not the funeral of one of our city commissioners, but rather a celebration of life. You know, it seems we can't even bring ourselves anymore to use the word funeral, let alone the word death. Instead, we've invented literally dozens, I mean dozens, of euphemisms like passed away and passed on and bought the farm and dozens of ways we've invented to avoid using the very word death. He died, she died. How far we've moved away from a biblical world in life view, let alone this place of spiritual maturity. The preacher here asks the question, what is good for us? And his first answer is this, let the first thing that's good for us is for us to face and squarely on, head on, seriously, and perhaps often, death. Twice he sends us to the house of mourning in this short passage. He turns our minds to the day of death and to sorrow. Why? Is, is Kohelet some kind of morbid person? Is it because he's so gloomy and so melancholy and always thinks about death and thinks that you, Christians, that you should do the same, always dark, always grieving? 
Well, hardly. You know. You know the preacher has told us several times now. You've heard it in this house repeatedly. He's told us in one way or another, enjoy life. Enjoy your lives. Enjoy your labor. Enjoy good food and, and drink and delight in your friends and, and find joy in, in God's good and lawful gifts to you. And he'll tell us that again another couple of times. He's no gloomy Gus. And he doesn't expect you to be either. There is a time to laugh. He's told us that plainly. There is laughter in the divine, sovereign, providential plan of God for your life. There is laughter. But he does, he does want us to be wise. And he even wants us to laugh wisely. Wise laughter. And the only context in which you can do all of those things, enjoy, laugh, rejoice, the only context in which you can truly do that is a solemn heart that is fully reckoned with death, with the shortness of your days and the brevity of your life. Where better to find that wisdom, says the preacher, than the funeral? That's why I'm so grateful, by the way, always so grateful to you who not only visit the funeral home and express your condolences, but who stay for the funeral service. It is, I think, the indication that you possess and that you desire to gain more wisdom pursuing a richer life in the Lord. You know the paradoxical way the Bible teaches you to apprehend it. It is by spending more time in the presence of death. That is a paradox, isn't it? It is good for you. You will live your life best in the presence of death. But how specifically does it benefit us to, to reckon with, you know, to spend time with, to be in the immediate presence of death? Well, as Walt Kaiser points out, to be in the presence of sickness or death has a tendency to bring us quickly to the really crucial issues of life. When you attend a funeral, you are helped, are you not, to focus on your own life. Uh, on your own character, on your own reputation. As the preacher says in verse 1, a good name is better than precious ointment. Now, ointment in his day would have been used as a deodorant. You know that, something to cover over body odor. And that includes the, body, the odors of live bodies, yes, but also of dead ones. You remember from the Gospels the, the words of Jesus about the extravagantly generous woman at Bethany. She is preparing my body for burial. She was pouring out that expensive ointment on him. I can't help but think that the preacher intends for us to consider that when we ourselves are dead, as surely as I'm looking at you now, you will be one day. It will be much better that we die with a good name 
with a good reputation, that is, than with much, much ointment. No amount of ointment, after all, can cover over a rotten character. How much more precious is a good name, a sterling reputation, than much expensive ointment? To put it very bluntly, I may very well be the one who buries you. And hear me now as I ask you please to give me or give whomever it is who will bury you good things to say about you. Make it easy for your pastor to commend your life at your funeral in a way that everyone in attendance will recognize and support and nod in agreement. Frankly, I can't help but think every time I bury someone that, that what will be said about me? What's going to be said about me at my funeral when I join this person six feet under? Well, you say, despairing, it's too late for me. My reputation is shot to pieces. I've blown it. I've blown it for good. But let me tell you this, you are wrong. You'll excuse the expression, you're dead wrong. It's not too late. You can make a good name for yourself, a beautiful reputation beginning today by taking the lesson of the funeral to heart and by living from this day forward unto your Savior in fidelity to your Lord. It's not too late for you. I mean, look. Look at the thief on the cross today. We know him as the penitent, don't we? In fact, He's commonly known by several names like these, the good thief, the wise thief, the grateful thief. For fancy your death. That's the way Alexander White put it. For fancy your deathbed. In other words, fetch your last day to yourself every day and with the eyes of your imagination see yourself dying. Premeditating your death will help you very much to live your life today the way you should and for as many days as you have remaining to you. And they are, as you confessed, fleeting. But what is more, let me tell you, that thinking often on the day of your death will actually help you to face it. It will actually help you to face your coming death with faith and with courage and with confident hope. Every funeral is another divinely provided opportunity for all of us. One of my 
commentaries imagines outside each funeral home God holding up his picket signs that read, Life is brief. Death is inevitable. Walk wisely. And within each funeral home, every casket cautions us. Redeem the time. And questions us. How are you spending the time? Every funeral reminds us to ask ourselves, what, what, what's going to be said of me? Will I be remembered as a foolish person or as wise? Of course, it's not only our reputation that must be brought to mind at our funeral, as we think of our funeral, but our, our resurrection. We will stand before God, my dear brothers and sisters, Every one of you, we will all give an account of ourselves to God, and that causes me, frankly, to shudder. But my point is not so much that as it is this. We will live with him in sinless perfection, restored, yes, more than restored, glorified. My goodness, you will have glorified bodies. Our Redeemer lives. And you will live forever with him because as Jesus himself said, at the graveside, the funeral, if you will, of his dear friend, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. The day of death is better for us than the day of birth because the day of death sends our minds to Christ. And to Christ trampling down death by his own death. Or as John Owen memorably put it, the death of death in the death of Christ. Death is not for us extinction. It is entrance. It's entrance into glory. Yes, it's true, our bodies are wasting away. We need no evidence Beyond the mirror for that, do we? But as my grandfather reminded me just months before his death, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Beyond comprehension. Remember those of you who were here that Sunday evening, Paul's inner wrestling over this matter of living or dying. You remember this? Which one did he desire the most, he said? I can't tell. You know, because, because living is Christ, but dying is gain. Yes, Solomon. We could hear Paul saying, yes, Kohelet, it is true, it's entirely true, the day of death really is better than the day of birth. It really is. It's good for us to reckon with death. The wise will lay it to heart. Second, it's good for us to embrace sorrow. Verse 3, sorrow is better than laughter. 
for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of, heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It seems so counterintuitive, doesn't it? Like so much of the Bible. Like the Beatitudes of Jesus, you know, that we studied together in this house a few years ago. It's not the courageous, the agreeable, the funny, the intelligent, the attractive who are blessed, but those who mourn, those who are persecuted, those who are poor in spirit, who are blessed. Now, the world is all about avoiding sorrow, isn't it? They live all day long to try to avoid sorrow, to get away from sadness. How much better to laugh, says the world. So they manufacture as much laughter as they possibly can. No matter how phony, how canned, how meaningless. Just keep them laughing. Just keep laughing. Keep laughing. Oh, you know better, Christians, don't you? They know that sorrow is better than laughter, Christians do. Particularly that kind of empty laughter, such as is described there in verse 6, and compared to the crackling of thorns under a pot. You know, it's useless popping off this laughter accomplishes absolutely nothing. It doesn't even heat the pot to burn a bunch of thorns. That's what vain laughter is, the vain laughter produced by the sitcom or the stupid jokes, the thin veneer that it is, phony, over a miserable heart. Sorrow is better. Sorrow is better. Why? Because verse 3, by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. Or as another translation has it, the heart is made better. People who are always seeking a good time, always running from any kind of serious considerations of life, of self, of God, of sin, always looking instead for another laugh, another light moment, another entertainment, another escape from reality. What happens to their hearts? They rot. They rot within them. They're laughing on the outside and all the while they're dying on the inside. Much better off are those who are thought, thoughtfully sad. That's the preacher's point, and that's Jesus' point too. Because they will be what? Comforted. Blessed are those who mourn. They will be comforted. In fact, if we're not sad, if... Here's a thought. If you are never sad, then, my friends, you have something to really be concerned about. I mean, you have a serious problem if you're never sad. How can anyone who knows the Lord 
in truth, never be sad. Sad about their sin. Sad about the way they disappoint their Savior. Deeply sad about the way we grieve the Holy Spirit. What was Paul if he was not deeply saddened when near the end of his godly life and ministry he was still lamenting, perhaps more than ever actually, how he failed to do the things he knew he should do. And the things that he wanted to do, those things he, he kept not doing. Whichever order. Real Christians know and experience real and deep sadness for the right reasons. This is not the preacher being dour and dark. No, no. Sorrow has a work, a perfect work to do in your heart. As Walt Kaiser points out, there is a mellowing that takes place in affliction and sorrow. There's a lesson to be gained from and a work to be accomplished by sorrow. How very different is the house of mourning from the the prattle and the laughter and the parties of fools in houses of mirth in verses 5 and 6. It reminds me of those famous verses of Robert Browning Hamilton's, I walked a mile with pleasure, she chatted all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, and there a word said she, but oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. Sorrow is our school. Sorrow is the school in which we learn our own hearts. And, by the way, sorrow is the school in which you learn the Lord's heart. You know that, don't you? And his wisdom. And his faithfulness. And his love. We come to know God in sorrow in ways that we could never, ever know him through mirth. Be still, my soul. When dearest friends depart, and all is darkened in the veil of tears, then you will better know his love, his heart, who comes to soothe your sorrows and your fears. Sorrow is better. Sorrow is better that will lead to true happiness and abiding happiness. You see, it, sorrow, sorrow is, is the preparation. It's really the only preparation for the truest kind of joy. That's the, that's the pattern of salvation itself. First sorrow, then joy. Remember in Bunyan's 
allegory, Pilgrim's Progress, how Christiana was reminded from the beginning of her pilgrimage in part two that the bitter is before the sweet. And, and she, she added, that will make the sweet the sweeter. That's exactly right. Two mothers in this congregation have taught us this truth in recent days. You saw Lindsay's post, perhaps, on the morning of Archer's birth that started this way. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in, yes, in the morning. Riley similarly turned my thoughts yesterday morning at the hospital to Jesus' words in John 16. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that child is born into the world. So with you, Jesus says to us, now is your time of grief. But I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. What is good for you, dear friends? What's good for you? I know I sound like your, your mother now, back in the day. Remember when she was giving you that bitter-tasting medicine, and she says, Oh, this is good for you. <laughs> Of course, you know now, in hindsight, she was exactly right. And you know I'm right, because God does not lie. What is good for you in this short life? It is to look death square in the face. And it is to embrace sorrow. Because both of those Christians lead to that place where God himself will wipe away every tear from your eyes and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. Amen.